The presenting sponsor of Top Docs is Netflix. Ken, I've really been impressed with the shorts we've been watching. When I look at the shorts that were nominated for the Oscar last year, they seem less like warm-ups for doing a feature work and more like a real art form in themselves. Yeah, me too. And I think one of the factors for me is just the economy of the filmmaking. I mean, being able to cut out all the fat, make them incredibly lean in terms of telling the story in kind of the most direct, but yet powerful way possible. Case in point is the Martha Mitchell effect. That film covers so much ground in less than 40 minutes that you feel like you've learned this entire almost underground history of Watergate by the end of it. It's also a great character study and I think a comment on our contemporary society as well. You can see the Martha Mitchell effect now on Netflix. Do you have like a brief two line log line for the film? Because I'd love to hear how you describe it. You know, it started as the search for the last slave ship, but it's really a story about the community. Welcome to Top Docs. I'm Mike Merrill. And I'm Ken Jacobson. Today, we're talking to Margaret Brown, the director of Descendant. In the film, Margaret returns to her hometown of Mobile, Alabama, to document the search for the Clotilda, the last known ship to arrive in the United States illegally carrying enslaved Africans. And the film also prominently features the rich stories of the descendant community of Africatown. So the Clotilda is often called the last slave ship, and it probably was. The story here is that the forced importation of African people into the U.S. for the purposes of enslaving them was ended in 1808 by an act of Congress. And this was further enforced starting in the 1820s, really, when U.S. federal ships started intercepting slave ships that were still against the law coming into the U.S. I want to emphasize it's very important that while this transatlantic slave trade, as it was called, largely did stop, slavery itself did not end in the U.S., of course, until the Civil War, until the Civil War was really over. Some enslaved people were still brought here from Africa. On the low end, historians say maybe 50,000 people. Others give a much higher number. But to give you a sense of scale here, by the time of the Civil War, there were about 4 million enslaved people in the U.S. From what we know, most of the people who were brought into slavery after 1808 were often brought in through places like Texas that were not yet fully states. Mention all that because it's important to understand what sort of impact these people who were brought from Western Africa might have on a local community in a place like Mobile. So the story of the Clotilla is that a wealthy shipbuilder, Timothy Mayer from Mobile, apparently made a bet on the eve of the Civil War that he could successfully escape detection and bring African people into Mobile, Alabama. He hired John Foster as captain, and I'm mentioning these names because you'll hear them in our interview. And on a ship that Mayer had built to carry lumber, which again has a lot of resonance if you see the film, he brought over 100 people, men, women, and children, who were taken from Dohemi, from Western Africa, which is now Benin, over the Atlantic to Mobile. The African people were landed on the shore, and the ship was burned and sunk because it was a federal crime to be doing this. Now, these people would spend about five years or so during the Civil War enslaved, 
But upon the end of the war, they basically took their own place near Mobile, now subsumed by Mobile, called by others and by them Africa Town. I think it's important to realize that these people, unlike other people who were enslaved at that time in the Mobile area, had a memory of life before slavery, of freedom, of Africa. And they carried this over into their lives during their five years of enslavement and thereafter. We know what happened in this trip and thereafter because the people of Africa Town told stories of the whole saga and passed those down generation upon generation to this day. One of the great things about this film is how Margaret so masterfully mixes together her consideration of past events, the present, what's going on now, and where this community and this history are headed. I can't think of another filmmaker who's had the ability to just balance all those different temporal elements and make them all somehow magically fit together. Every single frame of this film is in more than one place in time. It's in the past and the present, and hopefully in the future as well. In our conversation, I think she says that she's a vessel for the stories of the people of Africa Town, but it's clear that she's more than a vessel because she uses film to frame and juxtapose these stories in really creative and powerful ways. Descendant had its world premiere at the 2022 Sundance Film Festival, where it won a special jury prize for creative vision. It went on to screen at South by Southwest, CPH Docs, the New York Film Festival, and many other places. Almost all of Margaret Brown's films are set in the South. Her first film is about Towns Van Zant, called Be Here to Love Me, followed by The Order of Myths, which she talks about in our interview and came out in 2008, and The Great Invisible from 2014 about the Deepwater Horizon disaster, which won the South by Southwest Grand Jury Award. Descendant is available now on Netflix. As usual, if you like this interview, please follow us and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and tell a friend. Also, please follow us on Twitter at TopDocsPod. And now our conversation with Margaret Brown, the director of Descendant. Margaret Brown, welcome to Top Docs. Thank you. It's great to be here. Good to meet you, Margaret. So, Margaret, about 15 years ago, you made a film called The Order of Myths about Mobile, Alabama's still openly segregated Mardi Gras celebration. And in that film, we see that there are two Mardi Gras queens. One is black, one is white. And the year that you made the film, the white queen was Helen Mayer, which people who've seen Descendant will recognize the mayor name. She's a direct descendant of Timothy Mayer. And the black queen, Stephanie Lucas, was a direct descendant of one of the African captives who was brought to America on the Clotilda. I understand that in the making of that film, you got to be close with some of the residents of Africa Town and learned a lot about this story. However, you didn't decide at that time to make a film. Why is it that you kind of held back on making the film? And what made this timing the right time to tell the story? The Order of Myths is partially about Africa Town because of the connection between Stephanie and Helen. When we found out that connection, the whole film shifted under our feet in the way that we were making it. I didn't learn about Africa Town and the Clotilda when I was growing up. I went to private school for middle school and public school for high school. And there's an Alabama history part for both of those times. And I just don't remember it at all. 
making the Order of Myths was my education to that sort of hidden history. So I do kind of consider the Order of Myths to be a film that's about Africatown and about the Clotilda because it was centered around that connection between the two queens. However, that film is more about Mardi Gras and looking at where I'm from in a very anthropological way, like what is the construction of whiteness? It was a big question in that film. And it was also, you know, I look at the Black community as well, but it was also about my family and my connection to it as well. So it was a very different kind of thing. There was a false start, actually, in the Clotilda story. About almost five years ago now, there was an announcement that the Clotilda was found, the last slave ship to ever come to the U.S., I was in L.A. at the time, and one of the producers on The Order of Myths, I was having breakfast with him. He was visiting from Austin, Texas, Lewis Black, who started South by Southwest, kind of telling him, oh, they think they found the Clotilda, that ship from The Order of Myths. And I was just telling him about people were calling me and saying, are you coming back? Are you going to film? And I was saying no. I was like, no, I've already, I didn't think I should make that film. And Lewis was like, are you crazy? Like, you have access. Because at the time, like the mayor family wasn't talking to anybody. And Helen had been in my film. And they weren't talking to the New York Times or the Guardian or the Nat Geo. They weren't talking to any of the like big boys. And he was like, they'll talk to you. Like, you should go, go. And he literally gave me a check to get on a plane. And so I did. But it turns out they didn't talk to me. But I didn't really realize that until many years later. I did think at the beginning, because Helen was such a huge part of this other film I made about the Clotilda, I thought she would. But it quickly became clear to me that the stories of the descendants from the Clotilda, the Black descendants, they were such master storytellers from having passed down these stories for 160 years. That, to me, like, I wanted to center that story. The film led me to the right place. Just before the title of the film appears, we hear a woman in voiceover whom we later are introduced to as Lorna Woods, who's amazing. And she says, the history is like a puzzle that fits together. And she talks about how her grandmother passed stories down, but now they call me the treasure keeper in my family. It did become a film about these treasure keepers like Lorna, didn't it? And I'll just say, in terms of documentary storytelling or any kind of narrative, not having the mayor's story led you in a very fertile direction, I think. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, when she said that, it just gave me chills. And she's passed that along to her niece, who was one of the stars of the film, Joycelyn Davis, who now feels like she is the next treasure keeper. And we got to witness that. I mean, Lorna is still the leader, but we got to witness Joycelyn's transformation into this incredible leader through the course of the film. I got to see her go from feeling some feelings of shame around what happened to like pride. And it was an incredible thing to witness. But yeah, there's a really strong sense in that community of a sacred history that had to be kept private, but was very important. And when we were making the film, we sort of realized like this was a very sacred history. The crew, everyone knew like what we were documenting was to be treated in a very certain way. And even down to how we shot it and the kind of majesty of the characters, we thought about it from every perspective. So I think when I watched this film, the influence of Zora Neale Hurston just evident in every frame. A little backstory here for everybody. The Barracoon is a book that was published by Zora Neale Hurston about the Clotilda, originally slated for the 1930s, not published really in full to 2018. And Hurston was a 
ethnographer and a novelist, but as you also point out, also a documentary filmmaker, I think it opens up so many different avenues. So, you know, yeah. we've already talked about the importance of oral history, the ways in which the present is continually intertwined with the past. And then I think one of the things really interesting to me was how traditional narrative is usurped a little bit. And her works often, things are sort of running a certain way and then something happens where the narrative is disrupted. Yes. To that end, let me give you an example of where I think I see this a little bit, which is when we start hearing more about the ship and National Geographic shows up, we almost might wonder, is this going to turn into a Nat Geo doc? Are we going to be in search of the lost ship? And very quickly, you disrupt that. And Jocelyn Davis comes on and says, I don't want the momentum of the story to be just about the ship. And I think you honor that. Yeah, because I realized it's not really about the ship. I realized right away when I went to the community that, like I said before, this is a group of master storytellers. I'm from Mobile and I've always felt there's a tradition in the South of like incredible storytellers. I think even though I don't live in Mobile anymore, I've always been drawn back to tell stories there because it's just fertile with, with incredible storytellers. I mean, it's like that in my family too, but this community, especially because they've had to, I think I realized right away that it wasn't about the ship. It was about the community. It was obvious when I started filming that these people, I was interested in what they were going through, but there's so many layers to the story. And the thing about the ship is like, there's a real clear before and after, before there's tangible proof. And then there is tangible proof. And we get to see what happens when there's tangible proof. If there ever were a case for reparations in this country, and we can argue even about what does reparations mean, the word comes from repair. White people are really afraid of that word. But if you really think about a crime was committed, obviously no one is still alive. But when you see what happened in the community and what is still being done to these descendants, there's a way to talk about this that sort of takes politics out of it and brings it just in a simple realm of what is justice. And I think sort of in a common sense realm too about public health, I do think there's a very interesting broader American conversation that this film is a part of about what do we do? What do we do now about slavery? We know everyone is dead. Even though in my film, you can see how recently that that history happened because you can literally see Kujo Lewis in the footage that Zornel Hurston shot. So it's not that far back. So I think the sort of looping of history I'm very interested in. And another kind of descendant of Zora Neale Hurston in some ways in the film is Professor Kern Jackson, right? He's an ethnographer. He's captured a lot of tapes of folks speaking about this oral history. I love the scenes of him finding the tapes. I haven't used this in a month of Sundays, he says. He says he likes his truth in bits and pieces. And I wonder, to what extent do you think your film is capturing the chaotic approach that he suggests that truth embraces? It's what truth is. And he says, and I like when there's chaos and there's a big fat lie. Well, there's a lot of big fat lies in this film. And there's lots of chaos because truth is multifaceted and layered. And I really love layered stories. I think truth lies in complications and layers and contradictions. Like that's what life is like. And I like my films to reflect that contradictions and complications. I think audiences like film. I mean, I know I like films like that, that challenge me to think preconceptions. One of the film's unique strengths for me is that there isn't just one main character and then everything flows from that. It seems like there's three, four, five main characters and even Zora Neale Hurston is a main character. This strikes me as a fairly unusual storytelling strategy in documentary. Why did you 
choose to tell the story in that way? And what were some of the challenges of doing that? The film tells you what it is, right? The film told me that was what it wanted to be. I don't know, that sounds really hippy dippy or something, but that is true. And I thought like, this is a story about a community. And so let the community speak. This is also a film that was made over four and a half years. And more so than filming, it was a film that was made over numerous coffees and dinners and walks in the park and conversations on the phone and over Zoom during COVID about what does the story mean? Like, and it was something that not only involved the people behind the camera, but the people in front. Like, I've never had a film where I showed characters, scenes in the film as I was shooting. Because, you know, as a white person with many blind spots about the Black experience, and it being like literally the story of their family, I felt like I had to get it right. And I also felt like the sort of burden is maybe too strong of a word, but this is literally like living history. And I wanted their buy-in onto how I was doing it, particularly with Zora Neale Hurston, because that is not me shooting verite scenes of things that are unfolding as the ship is found or as people are coming into you know, you see them coming into their power. This is me deciding that like, I want to use the text of Zorniel Hurston as a way to tell their story because like I was talking about the looping before, like it is sort of a looping back. She's literally interviewing Kojo Lewis, the last known living slave. And like, he's telling her about the transatlantic voyage that was with Captain Foster and one of his descendants, white descendants shows up and later in the film. And then he like has conversations in there with Timothy Mayer. And to have the black descendants read those passages, I thought just to show how it's just not that long ago and the connection we have to history, I thought would be very powerful. Talking about white people getting it right or wrong. I think you have some examples of both in this film. One is when the, I think it's the National Geographic, reveals the illustration and a model of what the ship might have looked like. And one of the presenters suggests that it's a beautiful model. And the other tries to say, I don't know if I'd use that word. That seems to go off the rails. And it seemed to me to be a real warning about how not to approach Black culture. Yeah. When we were shooting that scene, it was so hard not to look at my other collaborators because we were just like, what is that guy thinking on stage? And there were other things that didn't even go in the movie because the camera was in the wrong place. <laughs> Things that were said to the community that we were just like, just keep your face neutral while you're filming. Don't show any emotion. It was very hard that day. But that's like part of our job, I guess, is to sort of be neutral in a way and just let the camera show it. Like, so let the camera show it. Let people watch it and think for themselves. Another scene, the descendant of Captain Foster starts a very old myth of the good master. And you show Kamau shooting him down pretty quickly, like, yeah, I don't know if that's a great way to think about it. You sort of show ways to rethink these things. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really human and not necessarily just a white thing. But in this case, I think this is something that white people do to black people all the time. In that way, it's a white thing. But I do think everyone wants to think that their ancestors were good. And I think that is one of the things in the United States, at least where I'm from, about slavery. I think he does something that's a very like weirdly teachable moment. When the film was about to premiere at Sundance, I called him the night before that Mike Foster and I said, hey, like the scene is in the movie and it's going to be like a teachable moment for white people, I think. And I'm just letting you know uh, it's in the movie. And he was like, oh, my God, what did I say? And I told him and he's actually like 
he apologized to the whole community. He is very involved in the Descendants Association and is friends with a lot of them. But I do think it's those kind of things that it's good to put in films just to show. When Herndon Inge comes on, you know, before he starts talking about the lost cause and how that's something white Southerners of his generation were sort of imbued with, he has this moment, and nothing in this film seems accidental to me. So we have a moment where he's breaking through brush and he arrives at a few hibiscus trees on his property and he says, well, these were planted in 1848 and the city tells me I can't touch them, even though they're on private property. There's a number of things here about history and, you know, how things are so tied up in the past. But also, I think this film, in some ways, questions a little bit about the nature of private property. You know, it's about zoning laws in some ways. It's about industrial, you know, is private property really private and owned by people if it was derived from illegitimate sources? I think is at stake here. I mean, I don't have to say anymore. You just said it all. Zoning is not like the sexiest thing to talk about, but it's definitely something that has been used against the Africatown community. And there's a very active fight going on there currently about zoning laws. Like Ramsey says in the movie, it's very permissive zoning laws in this industrial area that surrounds a very historic community. And the fight is to change that. Yeah, I would say, by the way, you make it interesting. And you have some great folks who are really fighting and battling. I would say they make it interesting. I just put the camera in their face. And this film has a lot of scenes set in gymnasiums, local high school gymnasiums and organizing. It also has these other lyrical moments. It's another way it reminded me of the work of Hurston, which is there'll be some mundane stuff. And then there's these lyrical moments. And you have this great scene of a young man, I believe, walking down the street at night. He's playing a stringed instrument. And this reminds us a bit about the origin of the banjo in Africa, to my mind. And it reminds us a bit about the way in which Zora Neale Hurston herself would sing the songs that she heard so they could be preserved forever. Can you talk about that, how you mix that kind of everyday stuff with this more lyrical approach? Well, that's sort of what it's like there. So I just wanted to mirror what was there, but that's Napoleon Williams. And he makes his own African instruments by hand. He's someone who often takes place in ceremony in Africatown, and he's a friend of Kern Jackson. Kern was like, we should have Lapoleon come for some of the festival stuff. But then we thought we were shooting some stuff in the town. And Africatown is like really lush and beautiful. Parts of it are super run down. But parts of it are also like the way the elders talk about it, just always having been like, if you needed some fruit, you would pick it off a tree. And the largest community garden in the state of Alabama is actually in Africatown. Again, because of where it is, we don't know if the ground in the community garden is toxic. I don't have an answer for you there, but I do know that like no one's going to starve in Africatown because there's always something. If you like collards, like you're in luck. It's very beautiful. Like when you go out there and they're planning, it's like people are yelling across the rows at night and talking to each other. And you see the community pretty well when you go to the garden. Another place you go in the film is the local graveyard with Emmett Lewis, who's one of the descendants. He talks about how his father took him there as a child. And that was his education, having his father tell him these stories of their ancestors. There's some tension here, of course, because he's a very likable, seemingly easygoing guy. But the tension for me is between the need to remember and the healing associated with passing on these stories and another layer 
the pain of remembering your ancestors' own irreparable pain. Yes. Can you talk about how Emmett manages to live with this tension, but also amazingly derive strength from it? I mean, honestly, you should talk to Emmett. I don't think I can speak for him in that way. But to me, as a witness to the way he carries himself, when we shot a lot of that, I mean, I guess we shot him from ages 27 to 31. And he knows who he is in this like really profound way. And I was always just really struck by that. Like he's so confident in himself as what he stands for, who he is, and just like who he is in the community, what he's supposed to do as a descendant. And I think that comes through in the film. Even just the part where he's in the Oakley house, which is basically a plantation home that's now a museum. I don't know. There's just something about him because he very openly is so emotionally available. Like he talks about his pain. He cries. He talks about Cujo crying and how painful that is to him. He's just so in touch with himself in a way that like, I know I wasn't when I was that age. And he's able to like, I guess, show the wound, but also show how he's gained strength from that. I just think he's a really inspiring person. Yeah, he is. And he's somebody who's lived his whole life with this. Going to this graveyard is not like just done for the film. It's clearly- no, for every day. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, he's always like, if you want to see me, just come to the graveyard. Like, I'll be there at this time. He sits in front of his father's grave and just sort of like meditates. In Oakley, he's reading from Barracoon and then the camera kind of stops and it goes black and he's talking about his experience there. And then you have this great shot of the gulf. We hear the sounds come up and then it cuts off and goes to a pool. And the imagery of water here is used beautifully throughout the whole film. Can you talk about what happened in that shot? I got a lot of pushback on that shot, <laughs> but I felt- I think it's great. <laughs> Thank you, I obviously do too. I wanted to show the apparatus of filmmaking and I wanted to kind of like deconstruct the construction of what we were doing and how we were in that space. First of all, like he was so emotional then, like he didn't ask me to turn off the camera, but I just did. Cause I just felt like he was crying and we went into another room, just me, him and the sound guy, Derek. And I said, can I record you? You seem really raw right now. Can we just talk about it? And that's what he said. He wanted to talk about it. He wanted to process it. I felt like in that moment, I was just able to be there for him. And I was honored that he like trusted me with his raw emotion. And yeah, so I just out of respect for him, I don't know if it was the right decision, but I felt like it was the right decision to turn the camera off and just let him talk. And I asked him if it was okay to still record it because it seemed important but I didn't want to film him. And I think he would have told me if he wanted the camera to be on. We talked about, you know, we discussed it. When that happened, it was just an emotional day for many reasons. And then I thought the shot was appropriate with the water because it's like the water's what it's about, you know? Yeah, we start with water. We start with Kamau in the water. And from this shot, as I said, we go to this pool. One of the things I really love about this film is ways in which it takes everyday experiences and just finds this much deeper context. I grew up swimming. I was on the swim team. I learned my lifeguarding certificate. So I spent a lot of time at pools, but I never heard it spoken about this way, right? So come out, talks about black kids are drowning. Okay, drowning. That was one of the reasons I learned to swim. But, you know, it's about racial equity too. And then he even suggests that learning these skills will help them build critical thinking. And ultimately he says it leads them to the spiritual nature of water and gives them direct access to their ancestral memories. I'm like, whoa, you know, like it's a swim lesson. It's amazing how much bigger it is. Yeah. Yeah. I remember I heard Kamal speak and he did not take me seriously for a long time. If you guys interview him, he will tell you. He was like, who is this blonde girl that keeps coming up to me 
who is she? Like, he sort of ignored me for a really long time. I was relentless <laughs> because I heard him speak and I was so moved by him. And I thought like he just had so much to offer. So finally, you know, he kind of let me in a little and I just kept, I mean, most of the time with films, I don't push that hard, but I knew his viewpoint and just with the way he breaks that down for that scene, that's like everything. So many layers, so many layers of connection and healing. He offers this possibility of healing that I think is really important, a, a way forward. He also connects it to the next generation, the kids. Obviously, a key moment is when they actually do find the ship. So <laughs> they find it. And what's interesting is that a couple of the folks who expressed some reluctance about the central place, the mythical place that the ship has taken on, some of the people who initially were like, let's not focus so much on the ship, such as Jocelyn Davis. When the ship is discovered, there's just this almost involuntary reaction of, I mean, it's a mixed reaction, but it's, you know, positive, really. I mean, they are just amazed and really thrilled that the ship has finally been found. And of course, it represents a physical manifestation of the fact that these stories they've been telling all these years amongst themselves are true. But my question is, does the finding of the ship in some way potentially diminish the importance of oral accounts passed down through the generations? What's going to be the connection now between this physical evidence of the ship and this oral history? I don't think it diminishes it at all. I think like the tradition of oral storytelling is part of their community and something they'll keep doing. And I just think the ship is just like the solidification of it. I don't think they're in competition. Also, the ship is like an ongoing thing. Nat Geo and Search and the Alabama Historic Commission are all actively working on figuring out what to do with that ship alongside the community who will have a say in that and, and the state of Alabama. And that's going to be interesting. Where I ended the film is not the end of their story by any means. The story continues. It's just we stopped filming. Another thing that you do bring into the film is this question of how do we memorialize something like this? And institutionally, what kind of museums are going to be created? Who's going to control that narrative? Exactly. So there's one scene where you follow an Africatown community activist, Anderson Flynn, as he goes to the so-called lynching museum in Montgomery, which is officially the National Museum for Peace and Justice, which has been a tremendously successful museum in terms of having thousands and thousands of visitors come through. But he questions, you know, how deep an experience are these folks having? Are they just coming and sort of checking off a box or is it going to be meaningful to them once they leave? What are your thoughts about what's happening along those lines with these various attempts to memorialize the ship and the story? I remember that day very clearly because when Anderson said that, he said most of the people who come here have been blessed beyond imagination and it's sort of a form of entertainment for them. As a filmmaker, I sometimes worry that's what will happen with my film. People, you know, they'll be like, oh, that was really, you know, I, I was really moved. And they forget about it 10 minutes later. So when he said, what will they do when they leave? I remember being like, yes, that's the thing. That's what we all strive for in art. Not always, but like for something that's like also about history and being part of the conversation of rethinking what history is in this country. I do want people to 
think about and possibly act and get involved in the community or just even in their own lives, think about their actions and how they treat others and maybe tweak how they think about American history. For a long time, that was the last scene in the film. But I think it's much better now because sometimes you're like, oh, that says the thing exactly, but then that's not really the right way to end it. One of the things that I think is encouraging in terms of the descendants and the residents of Africatown being able to have a major say in how their story is told going forward is that they have these institutional allies, such as Mary Elliott, who's the curator at the Smithsonian's National Museum of African-American History. And she urges Jocelyn and the other folks, tell your family stories, talk to each other, get these stories out. And in fact, we learn that Mary's own family story is in the museum. Yes. And then you have other institutional allies like Kern Jackson, who's a folklorist, and Kamau Siddiqui, he's with the Smithsonian. So I feel like with the support of these folks, there's a good chance that the people of Africa town and the descendants will not be steamrolled. But what's your take? I feel mixed. I remember when we were filming Vita on a day of celebration in Africa town, and she pointed out that like everyone's here celebrating, but basically the zoning laws aren't different. It's this really unsexy stuff, zoning. You can be celebrating, but like, it's about like common sense health things. And I think she's asking the right questions. Who's in control of that? Can people say, this is a celebration. We're going to look to the future. In that scene, Mayor Stimson says that. He says, let's look to the future. And I think, well, you have to sort of look to the past as well to talk about how we got here. And we can also look to the future. Of course, we should look to the future. But I just think everything has sort of a hidden meaning in that scene. And, a, and an overt one when it comes to Vita saying, you know, what she's looking to. She says, I, I don't want to be a part of it. I want to be it. Talking about the part she wants to have in the telling of the story and decision making and what goes on in Africa Town. I agree that they have very powerful allies. But I don't know that Mary Elliott can change zoning. The city can. It's definitely multifaceted. But I do think that their story is very powerful. Their storytelling is revolutionary in a way because it's kept their community. It's still there and it's been beat down, but it is still there. It's a resilient community. I do have a lot of confidence in them, but I think there's also other forces at work that would like income from the tourist attractions that could come to Africatown. There's a website at the end of the movie, descendantfilm.com, and it lists like all the local activist groups. I mean, when I first came to film, I was just going to meetings because there's so many, I mean, they're in the film. There's like a ton of activist groups in Africatown and they're very inspiring and they're fighting the good fight and some of the fights they're winning. So I just hope people at the end of the film are inspired to get involved and meet these people. Let me go back to reparations. The idea of reparations is raised, but Vida, who's one of the descendants, makes the point, how is this supposed to work? And you touched on this before. There's nobody to punish. So I don't think there's any justice, she says. What, what is there to do about it? One of the things that I love about the community is like there's a multiplicity of ideas about what justice would look like. And I think it's part of a larger conversation that we should be having in this country. You sort of get that in that scene, like Vita starts it off, but then you hear a bunch of other people's ideas about reparations. You realize that when you go to these meetings, it's democracy with a lowercase d. It's like everyone's arguing, I think, in a really healthy way, but everyone's arguing about what justice means and 
I feel really privileged to be able to listen in on some of those conversations. It's definitely a film about listening and asking questions. And I think people in the film ask many questions of history, of each other. You ask questions with the way you set up scenes and how you frame things. And if people just want simple answers, this isn't film for you, thankfully. No, I mean, just to talk about what I was saying a little bit more, I had a lot of blind spots as a white person making this film. And when I realized the mayors wouldn't talk to me, like there were friends of mine, one in particular who became a producer on the film, Essie Chambers, who's black. She's a writer and a producer. We sort of just organically started talking about what was going on and some of my concerns about centering a white experience, but that being my perspective as a white person and Kern also like sort of because I don't think the film would have been as powerful without people who are checking me. There's definitely things in the film that I fought with Essie and Kern about, including, and then realized at a certain point they were right and took it out because it was like for film by white people for white people. And it just wouldn't have been as good. I want to go back to Emmett, maybe for the last question, which is toward the end of the film, we're back in the graveyard with Emmett. He goes there every day. So you're back in the graveyard with Emmett. And a white writer shows up who's on a research trip. And the writer, not knowing that he's talking to a descendant, describes Barracoon as a, quote, dreadful story. And Emmett replies, it used to make me sad, but not now. Everything Kudjo stood for, he won because we're still here. I just thought this was such a profound moment. What was it like for you to be there and just record that and hear him really reclaim history? I think Emmett, he's like the embodiment of reclaiming history in a certain way. I couldn't believe that guy was there when we were just filming and he's just in the grave. It was like, the you know, one of those weird documentary things where you're like, <laughs> what? But a lot like that happens. That's what's wonderful about documentaries. Yeah, I love how Emmett reframes it for him. He tells him how to think about it. It's very powerful. And it was incredible being there to see that. And I also couldn't believe the white guy who's very well-intentioned, his uncomfortableness around it and not knowing how to act. The whole thing was like, wow, we just had a camera there and it just all happened in front of us. I read in the press notes that you wrote that this film feels like my life's work till now. How would you place this film in your body of work? And what did it mean to you as a filmmaker and as somebody who grew up in Mobile and just as Margaret Brown, human being? <laughs> I just felt like a lot of the things I've been thinking about since I was a very young child, you know, my parents really taught me to question things that didn't feel just. And I felt like there was a lot growing up that I felt was really messed up about where I grew up. And I had a lot of questions. I think my work is always about those questions, whether it be about like how to live as a Southern artist in the town story or like in the BP oil spill, just like looking at the South and like people, how they're impacted. I've had my lens on the South for a really long time. And of course, through the order of myths, but this one felt like I got to tell a story of where I'm from. It was such a privilege. And to have the trust of this community as a white person with their incredibly important story. I feel so privileged to like be let in and trusted. And I also know how important this story is because it's a rewriting of history. It's a correction. So yeah, I feel like it's part of a tradition in the United States, a, a deep tradition. I'm happy to be part of the 1619 Project, a conversation that's so much bigger 
than the film. And it's also a super complicated film. And I got all my layers in, you know, <laughs> and that's really important to me because I think it's a really complicated story. Ken always closes us out, but I do want to say I thought this was an incredibly powerful film, real collective effort between you and the folks in the film, as you've been pointing out. I would say that it's in the lineage of Zora Neale Hurston's work. There's great work in this lineage, you know, Alice Walker, Toni Morrison. I think there's some Faulkner here too, but this is an incredible work of art. It is an amazing documentary film. It's an activist film. It's a cinema verite film. It's an ethnographic film, but it also is an incredible work of art in the American tradition. I used to teach Zora Neale Hurston at UCLA, and my students loved Zora Neale Hurston, and I would recommend any of them today to watch this documentary because it is a real tribute to her and to the legacy of the oral tradition in the African-American community. I'm a white person, so, you know, that's the boundary of what I can say, but I love this film. I read Barracoon, and then I read her letters, mm. and oh my God, like I was obsessed with her letters. I just felt like she came so alive to me. It was like this like lens into a hundred years ago. It was so clear. And also that some of the writing in Barracoon, that's not the reporting of the conversations, but just like her talking through what it was like to be there. Oh my God. That was one of the biggest inspirations for me in the film. Just like being allowed into her world. I just felt so welcomed in by the way she wrote. It was like a portal to another time. And I would just end by quoting Kamau at the beginning of the film, who says, we have to listen to these ancestral voices. And you've really given us the opportunity through these incredible people to do so. So thank you so much for doing that. Congratulations on an incredible film and best of luck to you, Margaret. You guys' questions were so deep. Like, <laughs> I was like, whoa, this is the deepest one I've done. I'm so impressed. It was super fun, you guys. Do you have a recommendation for a documentary hidden gem, film you've seen that you don't think it's the recognition it deserves? I think this film is getting recognition, but I just saw Andy's movie, Last Flight Home. That movie absolutely slayed me. And I think it's such a departure for her. I mean, I've known her a really long time and it's so intimate. I was really blown away by that film. I just can't stop thinking about it. Mm -hmm.